We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. In a moment, we are going to begin Musaf, and Cantor is going to lead us in a special beginning of Musaf, which is done on the first day of Pesach, the first day of Yom Tov of Pesach, uh, and it will be reminiscent in some sense of the High Holy Days. Cantor will wear, will wear a white robe and will uh, chant uh, in uh, some High Holiday modes uh, and incorporate some beautiful tunes, uh, because on the first day of Passover, we switch gears liturgically from Sukkot until today. We add in, in the second paragraph of the Amidah, uh, a passage that's known as Gvurot Geshamim, in Hebrew, uh, acknowledging God's power to make the rain fall. And so uh, uh, during the Sukkot holiday on, on Shemini Atzeret, we uh, insert a prayer called Tfilat Geshem, a prayer for rain, and then begin to say Mashiv HaRuach Morid HaGashem in the second paragraph of the Amidah, which is a paragraph about God's power. And throughout the year, until Passover, we say Mashiv HaRuach Morid HaGashem there in that part of the Amidah, uh, asking God to make the wind blow and the rain to fall. And then on Passover, we switch gears to begin saying Mashiv HaRuach Morid HaTal, May God uh, make the winds blow and the dew fall. This correlates, of course, to a different season of the year that Passover inaugurates, the springtime season. And if you were to follow the agricultural cycles in, in the land of Israel, where most of our liturgy and calendar cycle is rooted, uh, and it gives a sense of the deep connection and indigenousness of Judaism to the land of Israel. And if you were to go to the land of Israel, you would acknowledge, you would know that in the fall and in the winter is the rainy season. And it is like clockwork. I didn't quite understand the Jewish calendar until I lived in Israel. And then I understood the Jewish calendar when I got to sleep in a sukkah in Jerusalem uh, in, uh, in, in October. And it was, you know, a beautiful, you know, uh, 60 degrees outside, uh, light wind breezing. It was gorgeous. And I said, oh, this is what Sukkot was always supposed to be like. No wonder they had it in November because growing up in Atlanta in November wasn't always so nice. I suspect my, my wife grew up in Winnipeg. Sometimes there were blizzards in, in uh, October uh, during Sukkot. Uh, it's not the way the tradition intended it to be observed. And Pesach begins the springtime. And in the spring and summer in Israel, also like clockwork, it is the dry season, a time in which rain, generally speaking, does not fall. So we pray, instead of praying for rain, which would be a vain prayer, a null prayer, uh, because rain doesn't fall during that time of year, we pray for 
do to fall. But aside from tying into the agricultural cycle in the land of Israel, the fact that we pray for these things uh, evoked a powerful question for me over the past week, one that uh, I and Cantor have been spending a lot of time discussing, because as it will become apparent to you, this is one of Cantor's favorite things to do. And I, uh, and she and I have been having discussions over the past couple of weeks of why this is so powerful for her and why we have this in our tradition at all. This prayer, Tzfilat Tal, uh, was not given to Moses at Mount Sinai. There's nowhere, if you look in the Torah, that says on the first day of Pesach, you should start praying for the dew. Just as, by the way, there's nothing in the Torah that says uh, on Shemini Yatzeret, you should start praying for rain. These were later innovations of the tradition. And uh, as my teacher, Rabbi Erwin Kula, says, that every tradition is just an innovation that makes it. Every tradition is just an innovation that makes it. So when you see a tradition like this, or really any tradition in Judaism, one has to ask, what was this innovation created for? What was the job it was intending to get done? And why did it make it? Now, the prayer for rain is in some sense more obvious, especially in a mindset and a theology which perhaps made more sense to our ancient ancestors that if you pray fervently for rain, the rain will come. The Torah does tie in the notion that if you uh, observe the commandments, God will make the rains fall in their season and the crops will be fruitful and plentiful and you'll have uh, goodness in the land. And if you do not, we say this in the second paragraph of the Shema, if you do not, follow the commandments, the land will dry up, the sky will turn to copper, and you won't be able to have any produce, any crops. So there is a theological sense within our tradition that, it, that righteousness results in divine blessing through nature. Now most of us, I suspect, have, are a little bit circumspect about that theology. Now we don't believe that there's a direct correlation between uh, the righteousness of our behavior or the fervency of our prayer and whether or not the rain is going to fall. That is part of the natural cycle of things, although it might be said that uh, and as we continue to learn about the impact of human behavior on the climate, what we can, I think, acknowledge is that our behavior, our activities, does impact weather patterns and agricultural cycles and, uh, and so on and so forth in ways that maybe were not intended in a literal reading of the Torah, but in a contemporary understanding of how our actions impact nature, I think that it, give, it, it ha provides an opportunity to give us pause and reflection about uh, our impact on the world around us. But let's say, if you're anything like me, that you are wary of a theology that says that our piety, our righteousness, will make God uh, choose either to make the rains fall or to not make the rains fall, then what is the point of a prayer like this one where we are praying for dew? Now again, I think Geshem makes a little bit more sense. If you live in an agricultural society, you know that the rain is of critical importance to whether or not you are going to eat that season. 
or whether you are going to make any income that season on the crops that you grow. But dew functions a little bit differently. It, of course, has an impact on the crops that are grown. It has an impact on the land, but not certainly in the same way as rain does. And so one argument is just to actually underscore the importance of dew in the overall agricultural cycle. That if dew didn't fall, we don't want rain to fall in the non-rainy season, but if dew didn't come at all, if there was no moisture at all, nothing at all could grow. It's not only dependent on the rain, it's dependent on the dew. If you were to look on page 375 at the prayer we say, it was written in the 6th or 7th century after the time that most Jews were no longer involved in agriculture. By this time, most Jews were more urban, were involved in commerce, uh, involved in uh, different kinds of trades, but not, generally speaking, tied to the land in ways that they were in more ancient eras of Jewish history. And so it could very well be, as Cantor suggested to me uh, a number of times, uh, that what we do here is we refocus ourselves, we connect our presence back to the cycles of the earth, the cycles of nature that we may be separated from if we are no longer intimately tied into the agricultural cycles. That's one possibility. I think that there's a second possibility, and it is connected to the actual language of the prayer as it's uttered. If you look at this prayer, what you'll notice are two themes. One is about God sending dew to the earth, and the other is about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And what do those two things have to do with each other? Making the dew fall and rebuilding Jerusalem. And also, what do they have to do with this time of year and with the Passover holiday? That's, I think, at the core of the puzzle that is this prayer and this ritual. So think about this. During the rainy season, agriculturally, what are you doing if you are a farmer? You are hoping that the rain is falling so that it will water your crops and grow your crops. After the rainy season is over, what are you doing if you are a farmer? You are harvesting your crops. What else are you doing if you're a farmer? Tilling the soil and replanting your crops so that by the time the next rainy season comes, the rain will fall, it'll water the seeds, and your crops will grow. In other words, the rainy season is a time of hope and of vulnerability. Our reliance on forces that are in some sense beyond our control to help us have the produce that we need in order to live. That's the rainy season. But the dew season, the dry season, is a time of human agency and human activity. It's the time that we are involved in the tilling, we are involved in the planting, we are involved in the tending to the soils that it produces crops What this prayer, I think, underscores is the interplay between divine activity and human agency. 
It's saying, yes, there are aspects of our world and of our lives that are beyond our control. We can't cause the dew to fall. We don't cause the rain to fall. But there are some things that are in our control. If we don't till the soil, if we don't plant those seeds, no matter how much rain falls in the rainy season, no crops are going to grow. We have to do that. We have to plant those seeds. We have to tend that soil. And if we don't, we won't have any crops. And so this prayer connects two things together. One thing that depends on God's activity, but another thing that in some sense depends on human agency. God can make the dew fall. God will ultimately usher in the messianic era, but it is also incumbent on us to participate, to partner with God in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which in our tradition is symbolic for the rebuilding, the repair of our entire world. This prayer talks about the partnership that God invites us to, to join hands with the divine and build the world that God envisions us to have. We cannot just rely on God to do the work for us. We also have to till the soil. We also have to plant the seeds. We also have to do the weeding. We also have to do the building. Because if we don't, nothing can be repaired. And it's why I think in addition to the time of year, why we chant this prayer on Passover. Because on some level, at its core, that is the message of Passover. As much as the Haggadah tries to go back on the story and have a kind of revisionist version of the Exodus story in which there is no human activity, that it's all in the hands of God, not an angel, not a messenger, as the traditional Haggadah says, the Torah tells an entirely different story, or at least a partially different story. That the Exodus was a partnership between God and human beings. Why is it that God asks Moses to go to Pharaoh? Why couldn't God just do it God's self? Because God relies on human partnership. Why didn't God just pick the Israelites up out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land? Instead, God has them join hands together and march out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land because the Exodus is about a joining of hands between God and humanity. God can do some of it, but God relies on us to pick up the mantle and carry forward in the work as well. We'll pray for dew, and we'll pray for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, recognizing on us.